Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Bible. We thank you that you speak to us through your word, through the Bible. Thank you that you have breathed it out. Thank you that uh, it teaches us the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Heavenly, Heavenly Father, this morning that we would see more of the great authority and power of the Lord Jesus. And as Steve has just prayed for us, that we would submit our whole lives to him. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's, there's something addictive about power. Now, once you've got it, it's hard to give it up. Once, once you've had authority, it's hard to hand it over. We've uh, seen it in Australia in recent political history. The time had come. John Howard had been Prime Minister for ages. He was past the age of retirement. There was an obvious desire for change in the community. He, he should have handed over to Peter Costello. But he couldn't bring himself to do it. He wouldn't do it. Started to believe he was the only one who could win the election. And so they went to the election. And the rest is history, isn't it? Liberal was defeated in a landslide. Mr Howard lost not only the position of Prime Minister but also the supposedly safe seat in Parliament that he held. And to this day the Liberals are scratching around trying to form a viable opposition. Now in one sense, this is a happy story. It's, it's the happy story of a democratic nation. It's the happy story of a man who believes in the democratic process and who accepted the vote of Australia. Mr Howard, unlike uh, many other people or in many other places in the world, he didn't take over the army and start a coup to keep power. He, he graciously bowed out. There was a peaceful transition. That's something for which we can be very thankful. Uh, but even still, I think it's just a glimpse of the addictive nature of power. Once you've got it, it's, it's hard to let it go. And of course, uh, the the stories across the world are often far less happy than what happened here in Australia, aren't they? Sometimes people are so addicted to their power that they will ruin their country before they'll give it up. They'll cause terrible suffering to the people that they're supposed to serve. You only need to look at the news at the moment. Mr Mugabe, from what I last heard, he will not give up his power in Zimbabwe. People have voted. He doesn't care. He won't accept it. He will intimidate. He will cheat on the elections. He will lie. He will kill to keep power. Uh, the economy can fall down around him. The people of the nation can starve all around him. But Mr Mugabe will hold on. And as the saying goes, power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. It's very, very often true. And part of the reason that it's true, it seems to be this addictive nature of power. Once you've got it, it's so hard to let it go. When Jesus' day, the religious leaders held great power. And not just religious power. We don't think of them just as like ministers or priests or something like that. There was not the same sort of church and state separation that we enjoy today. These guys held political power as well. And like most people, the religious leaders in Jesus' day, they loved their power. They loved the perks. They loved the status. They loved the money. They loved the girls. Their power was addictive. 
And so they didn't take too kindly to Jesus. I mean, think about what Jesus has done. We saw last week what he did when he came into Jerusalem. Uh, he, he, he rode in, do you remember, on the colt of a donkey, deliberately fulfilling the Old Testament, uh, showing everyone that he is the king, righteous and having salvation. Then he cleared the temple of the market. He, he put a dent in a valuable income source. And he criticised the religious leaders, said they've turned the temple into a den of robbers, warned them of God's judgement coming on them, that the fig tree will wither up and die. It's bold stuff. This isn't gentle Jesus, meek and mild we're dealing with here. Jesus has laid down the gauntlet. He's challenged the authority of the religious leaders. He's called them to fall in line with his authority. And so, as you can imagine... When Jesus and his disciples come back into Jerusalem, they're walking around in the temple, the religious leaders, they question him. They question him about his authority. They say, what right have you got to do this sort of stuff that you are doing? Mark chapter 11 and verse 27. Have a look with me. Mark chapter 11 and verse 27. They arrived again in Jerusalem. And while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? They asked. And who gave you authority to do this? You can understand the question, can't you? Remember these blokes, they've gone through all the right channels. They were born into the right families. They went to the right universities. They've made their way up the political ladder. They've done their time, paid their dues. They've uh, uh, done all the things that it takes. Meanwhile, here's this bloke from nowhere, from a peasant family, hometown of Nazareth, never went to uni, hasn't come through the right channels. What right has this this Jesus upstart bloke got to challenge their hard-earned authority? But Jesus doesn't want to give them the answer. He could say, I've got God's authority, but they wouldn't believe him. That would just make him mad. And the problem is, is what's going on is beyond the surface. These blokes come with this question that seems like they're sincerely interested in in inquiring as to the authority of Jesus, as to its source. But that's not what's going on at all. They're just cranky that he's challenging their authority. And Jesus, he wants them to see it. He wants them to see their own motives. He wants them to see that they're just playing political games. They're not seriously inquiring. And so what he does in typical Jewish fashion, Jesus answers their question with a question. He asks them them where they think John the Baptist's authority came from. Verse 29. Jesus replied, I'll ask you one question. Answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Tell me. Now this is a very clever response. Because remember, John the Baptist was the one who was preparing the way for the Lord to come. John's the one who said, and I've put it there on your outline, just on the left-hand side there. John said, after me will come one more powerful than I. The thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptise you with water, but he'll baptise you with the Holy Spirit. 
Okay, so John has just told them, expect someone with great power to come after me. Uh, expect a man with the power and authority of God himself bringing the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so if the religious leaders had listened to John, if they believed John, then they ought to be expecting someone like Jesus to come with God's authority. And now we see with this question that Jesus has left the religious leaders in a quandary. And it exposes their true motives. So they're not really interested in where Jesus' authority comes from. And so they're not really interested in exploring carefully whether, whether John's authority is truly from God. They don't want to admit that John had God's authority because that had played into Jesus' hands in this, in this game. But the thing is, John was a hero. The, the people loved him. He was, he was a brave martyr. He, he'd given his life to oppose Herod and uphold God's law. And so the authorities are stuck. Verse 31. They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he'll ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. The religious leaders are stuck. I mean, they wouldn't be stuck if they were seriously inquiring, but they're stuck because, because it's all this political game. And so they say they don't know. Not because they don't know, not because they don't have their opinion, but because they don't want to give an answer. Verse 33, so they answered Jesus, we don't know. You see what Jesus has done? He's exposed their motives. They don't care about the truth. They're not sincerely inquiring into the source of his authority. They won't carefully investigate John the Baptist's authority so as to truly discern where Jesus' authority comes from. It's all political games. Here's what's really going on. These blokes are power addicts. And Jesus is a threat to them. Well, the leaders have uh, refused to answer Jesus' question, and so he refuses to answer theirs. That was the deal. Halfway through verse 33, Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Now, um, Jesus says that he won't answer, but he doesn't just want to leave it there either. These religious leaders, they need to know what's at stake. Jesus' authority is from God, and they need to know what's going to happen if they resist his authority. And so in chapter 12, Jesus tells a parable. Now, unlike the parables back in chapter 4, this is not a parable meant to conceal anything. This is a parable that's meant to expose the religious leaders, and it does it very clearly. Everyone knows exactly what he's talking about. This is a terrible parable. It's a parable of the history of God's people. It's a parable borrowed from Isaiah chapter 5. It's a parable which pictures the power-addicted religious leaders trying to usurp God's rule over his people to the extent that they will even kill the Son of God, the Son who has God's authority, which answers the question that the religious leaders have just asked him. It's a parable in which they resist God's authority and they in turn lose their place and their lives. And the parable works like this. Uh, the, the owner of the vineyard... That's God. The vineyard is the people of God. The farmers who rent the vineyard from the owner, they are the leaders of God's people. God wants fruit from his vineyard. Justice and righteousness, like he said back in Isaiah, repentance and obedience. But the leaders won't let him have it. God sends servants, that's the prophets through the Old Testament, but the leaders reject them. Finally, God sends his son, Jesus. But the leaders in this, 
in this ultimate power grab, addicted to their power, they even kill the son. They want the vineyard for themselves. Chapter 12 and verse 1. Have a look with me. He then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They'll respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Sends shiver up your spine, doesn't it? The leaders, in their, in their grab for power, they kill the son. But their so-called victory is not going to last. Their time will come, verse 9. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Well, if that wasn't clear enough, Jesus has then got a quote from the Old Testament, a quote from Psalm 118, which the people were just quoting as he came in, uh, came into Jerusalem. It's a quote about a stone, and the quote works like this, um, that the stone is Jesus. The, the religious leaders are the builders who reject the stone. They're rejecting Jesus. But Jesus will prove to be the, the headstone, the, 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 the most important part of what God is building, the, the, the king in God's kingdom. Verse 10, Jesus says, Haven't you read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvellous in our eyes. It's the same message as the parable again, isn't it? Because of their power addiction, these religious leaders, they're going to reject and kill Jesus, but God will raise him to life again. God will make him the king in his kingdom. The day will come when, the, when these religious leaders and every other body, every other knee, they get, they're going to bow before Jesus. All his enemies will be defeated. These religious leaders, they are treading on very dangerous ground. They're about to reject the king in God's kingdom. They're about to reject the one who has God's authority, and it is the worst mistake that they could ever make. Well, the leaders understand all too clearly what Jesus is saying. But they don't believe him. They won't let go of their power. And so they go about fulfilling exactly what he's predicted. They try to find ways to reject the stone, to kill the son of the vineyard owner. They can't do it at this point, though, because of the crowds, and so they kind of slither away. Verse 12. Then they looked for a way to arrest him, because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Okay. Well, can you see, then, the point of this section in Mark's Gospel? Fairly clear point, this one, isn't it? It's all about authority. It's all about power. Jesus comes 
with the authority of God. He comes as the son of the owner of the vineyard, the, the, the capstone in God's kingdom. He is acting on God's behalf, sent from God with God's power. But the religious leaders of the day, like, uh, like people have always been, they were addicted to their own power. They didn't want to give up their power, so they didn't want someone like Jesus challenging their authority and telling them what to do. As Jesus predicts here, that would lead them to kill him. But ultimately, it would lead to their own judgment and destruction. As the Jesus they killed rose again, and as they and everyone else will be defeated by him. Sad story. Sad story, don't you think? Remember, these guys, are, they're the leaders of Israel. The, the most religiously educated, the ones who, who should have welcomed the king. Sad story. And, and sadly, it's a story that's played out time and time and time again today as, as Jesus confronts power addicts. Jesus, it's the same now as it was then. Jesus he is the risen king. He, he, he's the head of God's kingdom. He demands ultimate authority. Just as he did then, he does now. Jesus demands to be the king of his people. Jesus demands that people submit to him, obey him, do what he says. That was and is a direct challenge to power addicts. And so you see, power struggles. It happen at all sorts of levels. On your outline there, I've suggested three levels. Three levels at which you see this power struggle between power addicts and Jesus. Now, the, the, first one, the first one, I don't, I don't think it really applies to us directly, but it, but it can really help us to understand something of what is going on in our world. The power struggle happens at a political level. You get, you get a power addict in control, particularly a in complete control as some sort of a tyrant and, and they will clash with King Jesus and they will clash with those people whose loyalty is to King Jesus over and above them it's the same today as it was in Jesus day tyrants cannot stand the challenge to their authority that Jesus presents and so they'll do their best to eradicate Christianity and Christians this is actually a very significant reason why Christians are persecuted in our world today a very interesting book about the persecution of Christians today. It's called uh, Their Blood Cries Out by a guy called Paul Marshall. And uh, I want to quote at length from him as he explains this. This is uh, from Paul Marshall. He writes, Many Christians are leading democracy and human rights activists. They are also in the forefront of economic development. But perhaps more important than what they do is who they are. While usually loyal citizens... Christians embody an attachment to another king, a loyalty to a standard of spiritual allegiance apart from the political order. This fact itself denies that the state is the all-encompassing or ultimate arbiter of human life. It means that contra the Romans and modern totalitarians, Caesar is not God. This confession however mute, sticks in the craw of every, of every authoritarian regime and draws their angry and bloody response. 
Many Christians are therefore persecuted simply because they are Christians. Their usually peaceful and quiet beliefs stand as a rebuke to those who are corrupt, to those who cannot tolerate the presence of any view but their own, and to those who want to make their own political regime the only focus of loyalty. The very existence of Christians is a silent witness to a claim beyond human control. I think that's really powerful, don't you? The very existence of Christians stands as, as a challenge to those people who want to claim absolute authority. Jesus claims authority over and above the state. And that, to quote Marshall's neat phrase, sticks in the craw of tyrants. I don't know what a craw is, but whatever, wherever it is, it sticks in it. Okay? It sticks in the craw of tyrants. They are, they are addicted to their power. They, they, they won't stand any challenge to their power, and so they hate Jesus, and they hate those people who put loyalty to Jesus over and above loyalty to them. Now, you might think this is all a bit academic. This is actually leading to the death and suffering and pain of literally millions of Christians. As political tyrants cannot abide the fact that they will submit to Jesus over and above them. And Marshall gives in his book hundreds and hundreds of modern examples. But let me just quote one because I think uh, uh, it's stated very clearly. This comes from 1992 and in China. And the state-run press, uh, they noted that uh, Christianity had played an important role in undermining communism in Eastern Europe, as people thought that there was another king above the state. And so this is what the state-run press wrote. If China does not want such a scene to be repeated in its land, it must, this is talking about Christianity, it must strangle the baby while it is still in the manger. Can't get much clearer than that, can you? The communist state, the communist regime could not tolerate the idea that, that Christians would put Jesus above the state. And so to this day they repress and persecute Christians. Can you see how this power struggle happens politically? Well, it also happens ecclesiastically. Sorry for a big word there, it just means in churches. Okay? Um, uh, Jesus' claim here is perfectly clear. Jesus has God's authority in his church, among his people. Jesus is the boss of the church. It's vital that we get this clear. God's vineyard does not belong to religious leaders. The church does not belong to any people. People don't in themselves have authority. Now, it doesn't matter what sort of credentials people will try to impress you with. Authority is not in the fact that you've got a TV show. Just because a bloke's on TV doesn't mean he knows anything about Christianity. Authority is not in academic qualifications. Just because someone's got a PhD in theology doesn't mean they know anything about Jesus. Authority is not in ordination. Just because someone claims the title reverend or your holy, gracious, something or other, they can't tell you what to do as a Christian. Nor does a bloke gain any authority by putting on a dress and a silly hat. Authority is in Jesus alone. Authority is in his word, the Bible. Now this is an out-and-out out challenge to the concept of a pope. A person who claims the authority of Jesus on earth. The bloke who is coming here to Australia 
he is in direct conflict with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just him, though, of course. This is a challenge to any power addict religious leaders who try to lord it over Jesus' people. The only authority that any religious leader can ever hold over you is to teach and apply God's word to your life. If they're doing that, then listen, be thankful, put it into practice. But they have no authority outside of God's authority in his word. Now, I don't want to sound smug about this, but, but this is one area in which the Presbyterian system gets it right. The Presbyterian system is very valuable. Now, the Presbyterian Church of Australia is explicit in saying that Jesus is the king and head of the church. There is no pope, there is no patriarch, there is no bishop or archbishop or primate or rector or victor or any other silly name you can come up with. Jesus is the sole king and head of the church. Now, the Presbyterian Church is also perfectly clear and explicit in saying that the supreme rule for Christians is the word of God. If a Presbyterian leader cannot prove something to you from the Bible, then they have no authority to tell you to do it. Now, there's also our church government system, where we have a number of elders. In our system, you don't have one person in charge. Now, I'm not in charge, Warren's not in charge, Carmelinda's not in charge, Barry's not in charge. Um, authority and responsibility for this church, it rests in our elders. Currently 13 of us. We have a multiplicity of leaders. It's a good way to keep power addicts under control. Now, of course, the system doesn't always work. Uh, there are Presbyterian ministers and elders out there who act like little tyrants, who, who try to assert their own power over God's church, but at least the system itself recognises the danger of power addiction. The system recognises that Jesus is the one who has authority and it gives minimal power to any one person. I think it's something we want to hold on to quite, uh, quite dearly. Okay, so this power struggle, it happens politically, it happens ecclesiastically, and finally it happens personally. It happens in each of our lives. Friends, friends Jesus is not just a saviour. Jesus doesn't just fix up your sin problem and rescue, from hell, rescue you from hell. Jesus claims to be your boss. Jesus demands to be your king. Jesus is Lord. That means you don't just pray a prayer asking Jesus to forgive you and then go about your normal life, either to start off as a Christian or, or, or on a Sunday morning. It means you can't just say to Jesus, yeah, Jesus, I'll give you a couple of hours on a Sunday, but the rest of the week, that's mine. Jesus, he claims the authority of God in our lives, in every aspect of our lives, as Steve prayed for us before. Jesus has authority in your work life. He can tell you what to do, how to work, and you need to obey him. Jesus has authority in your family life. Jesus has authority in your so-called personal life, in your sex life, in your TV watching life, in your leisure do you, see, do you see the personal implications of this passage here in Mark? You can't be Jesus' person and at the same time deny his authority. You can't be Jesus' person and then hold under the power to run life how you want. Jesus claims the authority in your life. You reject that and you reject him. That's not easy for people like us, is it? 
for, for, for power addicts like us who want to run life our own way, who want to keep control, it can be a power struggle. Can I warn you, it's not a struggle you can win. Here in Mark 11 and 12, Jesus is claiming the authority of God. Uh, to the power-addicted leaders of that day, it was unacceptable that many had to die. But the stone the builders rejected, it's become the headstone, the capstone. God has raised Jesus to the highest place. The day will come when every knee will bow to him, when every tongue confess that he is Lord. So friends, friends, beware of power addiction. Don't try to hold on to power like some out-of-date politician. Don't take on Jesus in any power struggle. Give up. He has God's power. So bow before him. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank and praise you for the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he has authority to forgive us our sins. We thank you that he has authority to bring us into your kingdom. We acknowledge that Jesus, as the king of your kingdom, has authority over our lives and we're sorry for ways that we disobey him or withhold him his due. Please work in us by your spirit so that we submit our whole lives to King Jesus. We pray for those Christians throughout the world who suffer and die because they continue to uphold Jesus' authority over that of tyrants. Please protect them. Please help them to stand firm. Please grant those who repent, grant those who, who persecute Christians repentance, that they may, like the Apostle Paul, turn and, and begin to follow the Lord Jesus. Our Father, we thank and praise you that Jesus is the, the King and Head of your church, and we pray that you will soon send him back and bring in the new heaven and earth where righteousness dwell. We pray it in Jesus' name.